dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, I am sharing a best of episode. This originally dropped on June 22nd, 2020, and it has a significant amount of downloads. So I thought it would bring it up to the forefront for anyone who missed it. Enjoy Brunello, Barolo, and Barbaresco. No, 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 never let you go. Thanks for listening to Exploring the Wine Glass Podcast, the podcast for people who love wine. I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program and WSET Level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now is the perfect time. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Do you remember your elementary school days? There were the small desks and short water fountains. You stayed in one classroom, but the subject you were learning about changed throughout the day. Oh, and don't forget about recess, the best time of the day. Back then, the three R's were all the rage, reading, writing, and arithmetic. It is said that there are three learning styles, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. For wine lovers, kinesthetic is definitely our favorite modality. The best way to learn about wine is to taste it. And over the last few months, I was privileged to taste my way through the three B's of Italy. On today's episode, I am sharing another Raid Your Cellar virtual event I attended hosted by Benchmark Wine Group on Barolo and Barbaresco. These virtual tastings are free to join but you may want to contribute in support of the United Sommeliers Foundation, a nonprofit organization that helps the wine industry professionals during times of hardship. But before we get into the episode, I want to share another five-star rating, this one by Shooting Breezes, titled Informative Wine Podcast. I was really impressed with the knowledge that the host threw down in the podcast. Really interesting and easy to listen to. Felt like I was on a bit of a virtual wine tour. Thank you, Shooting Breezes, for taking the time to write that review. So now, unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle, and let's discuss the 100% Nebbiolo regions of Barolo and Barbaresco. Barbaresco and Brunello. We're super excited to be here. Uh, what you can expect is a very fun and vibrant conversation from all these wine enthusiasts of different backgrounds. We have collectors here, we have some sommeliers here, and we're all together essentially around a virtual table to talk about wine. And we're so happy that you guys are all here with us. Um, so I'm going to first turn it over to Mr. Eric Siegelbaum, because tonight we are raising money or donations for the United Sommeliers Foundation to support sommeliers. So, Eric, would you like to take it away? Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Eric Siegelbaum. This is the love of my life, Brian Deering. Um, we, uh, we are all here tonight in support of not just Great Wine, but the United Sommeliers Foundation. 
Uh, so your host tonight, John McDaniel, is our founding secretary of the organization. And we exist to help support sommeliers who have lost their jobs through no fault of their own, in this case, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you know, little known fact, sommeliers are generally the first to be let go and the last to be brought back. Um, despite the fact that we deal in high-end deliciousness, you don't see a lot of Ferrari salespeople driving Ferraris. Well, with sommeliers, it's the same idea. A lot of them don't have benefits. They're hourly living paycheck to paycheck. So we founded the United Sommeliers Foundation as a way to help support our community in their time of most desperate need. Uh, so uh, for any of you that are watching on the free screen, there is no requirement to donate. However, we will type in the address to our website if you are so inclined to donate to the cause. No amount is too small. Um, and you can directly help impact the lives of those that might have impacted your life for the positive when it comes to dining, restaurants, etc. Um, so I'm going to throw it to John McDaniel. He is the founder and owner of Second City Soil uh, in Chicago, and also, as I mentioned, Secretary of the United Sommeliers Foundation and responsible for some pretty big donations for our organization. So uh, without further ado, Mr. McDaniel. Uh, thank you, Eric, and uh, thank you uh, to Benchmark Wine Group for having me and to Michelle for uh, coordinating all this, and hello to everyone this evening. Uh, so, you know, when we look at the, the possibilities of talking about wine and talking about collectible wine and, and talking about... Uh, you know, things that were, you know, there is no time like the present, uh, you know, three wines that really come up more than anything when, when we talk about Italy is Brunello, Barbaresco, and Barolo. Uh, the original title that I wanted for this uh, whole segment was, I'll see your murder hornet and raise you three bees. So uh, why not be topical about this and really uh, have some fun? You know, the, the iconic wines of Italy, you know, Barolo, Barbaresco, and Brunello, uh, you know, fit on any wine lists in the world. They uh, match with so many different things and really showcase the, you know, the flexibility of both the varietals of Sangiovese Grosso with, uh, from Montalcino and also Nebbiolo. And as you dive deeper into uh, Barolo as um, a village and as a, as a place, as you dive into Barbaresco, the comparative between those two uh, is, is really important to understand that, uh, you know, Barbaresco is its own entity. Uh, Barolo is its own entity. And then when you throw Brunello in the mix, uh, so many different things with Italy that uh, can come up. So um, as Eric said, my name is John McDaniel. I uh, own a consulting company based here in Chicago, um, but I work all over the world for a lot of different clients on really how to how to answer that question of how we can do better uh, in, in the wine world. I know that whether you are a consumer in the trade, uh, a journalist, everyone is uh, looking at ways to be creative and innovative at this time uh, to be able to find ways to uh, make the wine world uh, stay in existence. And so I uh, definitely appreciate everyone uh, in their help for the United Sommeliers Foundation and all the partners uh, therein. So no time like the present, as I said, to let's uh, get cracking you know, on some wine. Uh, so I'll start and, and really share my wine that I brought uh, from a client of mine, uh, Enrico Rovetto. So uh, Rovetto, so I'll show you here, uh, we're drinking the 2013 vintage, uh, a baby, but I figured why not crack it tonight? Uh, for a really special wine uh, from a special place. So uh, Enrico Roberto, um, you may have seen two different Roberto families. Uh, it's actually brothers that have split off uh, and done their own thing. Enrico Roberto is the old uh, family uh, winery in Sierra Lunga, started in 1902, uh, most famously for beautiful wines uh, you know, from the Sierra Lunga area. And then his brother Alessandro has gone off and done Alessandro Roberto. So both are really amazing producers, and so I brought this one, uh, Bricolino, one of my favorite vineyards. They've started to move to biodynamics for this wine, and you know what I love about this is that it really showcases Nebbiolo in really calcareous soil, 
very deep kind of dark uh, styles that we get from Seralunga and really even in this kind of vibrancy. So I opened this up uh, about six hours ago uh, and just opened it in the bottle. Uh, you know, I didn't decant it or anything, just kind of started in the glass here. Uh, and, you know, what I love about this wine is just its versatility here. So even in its youth, we still get, you know, beautiful tannic structure here, a lot of red fruits here, but it's a lot of kind of more dried fruits to it. So you really get, you know, that kind of soil aspect to it. So uh, as we, you know, kind of go around and looking forward to answering some questions and talking about all the amazing things that, uh, you know, everyone is drinking, let's bring in some of our other panelists here and, and start to see what else they're drinking here. And I'm going to kind of go clockwise in, in my world. And Wendy, we'll start with you and welcome this evening on uh, the Three Bees Nights. And why don't you tell us what's in your background there and what you're drinking and uh, and who in the world you are as well. Background's actually champagne. Uh, this is um, Montanera's. Um, I was the ambassador for Ruinart Champagne, the U.S. brand ambassador for Ruinart. Um, I'm currently... Um, furloughed at the moment, but that's what who I work for. So you're seeing champagne in the background. And I actually was drinking a little bit of Charles Heisick. Uh, I guess you can't see it with my background. A little happy before I started this. But um, I am an advanced sommelier. I currently live in New York. And I'm actually drinking, I don't know if we can see it this way, the La Racina 2013 uh, Brunello de Montalcino. So when we said that we were going to do the three Bs, um, Nebbiolo happens to be one of my perfect, like, favorite grapes, but so is Sangiovese. And Brunello de Montalcino is actually what brought me into the wine industry. I was early 20s and backpacking Europe, and somebody told me to bring back in 1995 or 97 Brunello. I had no idea what it was. Um, I did pick some up when I was in Italy, though it took me some time to find and when I actually tasted it, it was not what I, I, it was super tannic and structured. But when I actually ate it with food, I, I basically fell in love. I was like, what is this? Because I was young 20s, end of college, and probably just drinking just to get drunk at that time. And uh, it's what brought me into the wine industry. So I am drinking, it's a little young. You guys, a lot of you guys are drinking some amazing wine. Um, but for 2013, I think it's showing really well. It was a uh, fairly good good vintage in Brunello, not one of the top, top vintages, but a really good vintage with it. And La Racina is a smaller family-owned estate, started in the uh, 1970s, right about the time, like Brunello wasn't a big thing until about the 80s. And this is coming in from this hill that's in Montalcino, which is in Tuscany, 100% Sangiovese from the with, uh, from the Brunello clone with a little bit of time spent note. So the La Racina is kind of tiptoeing the line of old, um, old world or old traditional versus new with new oak. But so it has a little of both. It spends time in both large barrique and also, or, or sorry, let me say that again, a small barrique along with a large boti. But it's kind of just right there in the middle and perfect. And I did decant mine. I decanted it about an hour and a half ago. Um, but just really, really structured. But again, those dried fruit characters and structure that just goes perfectly with almost any type of uh, dark red meats. Mm. Yeah, I've had some older vintages on, on my list in the past of La Racina, and that's one too. Of, you know, it always drinks really well young if you kind of allow it to coax it out. Um, but they also last forever. So I love how you kind of you know describe that match of you know traditionalism, but also you know of 
really focusing on how to make it approachable. Uh, and I think that that's something, you know, for all lovers of, of Montalcino, it's really wondering, well, when do I pull the trigger? When am I going to you know, drink this? And is it going to be too young? You know, I think too old is never really a problem that we're going to find out there. But uh, youth for Montalcino, especially for, you know, some of those Brunellos and uh, more structured vintages, uh, definitely difficult. But uh, the, the 13 La Racina, I know, is a, a beautiful wine at this point. And uh, thanks for thanks for sharing it. So. Yeah, it's a, it's it's really showing well. I mean, I think the the uh, Barolos I had in my possession currently were way too young, and I looked at them going, mm, no, that would be infocide. I can't really open that wine that soon. So um, it's it's really it kind of does that perfect. It it's it is young, but it can be it can still uh, show its uh, shoulders and be a really pretty wine strength. So it's it's beautiful wine a little bit. Um, yeah, and something really dear and dear and special to my heart because it literally is what caused me to be a sommelier. I came back and I was like, "This wine uh-huh. thing is amazing." Yeah. I I'm not going to do chemistry. What am I thinking about? Let's let's go into wine. So that's actually what what brought me in. So yeah. Well, very good. Look forward to seeing how it uh, develops over the next hour, and uh, even if if you don't finish it by tonight, uh, how it's going to be uh, tomorrow and afterwards too. So very good, Wendy. Thank you so much. Jeff, we'll move on to to you at this point. Uh, You're my next in the circle here, and uh, I got a little preview of what you brought uh, for us this evening. One of my favorite producers, and when we talk about kind of traditional meets, modern style, and also from a rocking vintage. So, Jeff, if you want to introduce uh, yourself and your wine, and thanks for joining us this evening. The the fun of of these tastings. So, Jeff, there we go. Welcome this evening, and uh, tell us about what you you have going on there and a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well... I'm a champagne importer in terms of my involvement in the trade, but I'm also a collector. And one of the areas that I collect quite a bit is Italian wine, particularly Barolo and Barbaresco. And um, Odero is one of my favorite sort of unsung producers. They're a longstanding traditional producer, but somehow have skirted and sort of flown under the radar. So many of the great traditional producers have gotten a lot of acclaim now and have really pocketed up in price, but Odero has not, and that's nice. And it's a fairly large producer, so there's you can actually find Odero. And 96 is a really good year, um, one that you had to wait a long time on. Um, I'm just starting to open my 96s now, and I think they're starting to come around, although I think you could make a pretty good argument that this wine would be better in five years than it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's amazing. That's one of the things that's fun about Barolo and Barbaresco is there's almost nothing too old. I've right. had a lot of Barolos and Barbarescos from the 50s and 60s. Sometimes they're over the hill, but a lot of times they're not. Um, and that makes them fun as a collector. And Odero is one of those ones that really will last. Um it's not a single vineyard. It's a blend. Um, but I think it's showing really nicely tonight. And I decided to drink it along with some manchego with truffles because I figured that's a pretty good pairing. And uh, it seems to be doing all right. I'm jealous over here. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to get your address after this. Yeah. Jeff, you said Jeff you had yeah. just started to open up some of your 96s. What have you kind of noticed so far about uh, the vintage from the producers that uh, you've opened? and how does the wine you have tonight kind of compare to some of those you've uh, you've started to open from the 96s? Well, this one's a, a, 
This one's a little more open than some of the 96s I've had in the past. I'm, I'm really, I'm still just starting to open the 96s because it really is, you know, when I've, two or three years ago when I opened 96s, they just were not ready. Um, and I'm, I'm starting to, as I say, starting to drink them, but, you know, I definitely think that, for example, the 98s and the 2001s are probably showing better now than the 96s. Sure. 99s, I think, maybe not be ready yet either. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Do people agree? 99s are drinking pretty good. It's a precocious vintage. Yeah. No, and I have from the 96s, I've, uh, over the last, you know, couple of years, I kind of agree of it's, it's definitely a structured vintage that it's, it's going to last for a while. And, uh, I've actually some, you know, some really great kind of other late nineties and some ones that, uh, especially in, uh, in Barolo that have, have been great. So, and Odero, I think as well, you know, takes a little bit of time to, to get out of the, out of the starting gate, but you know, some of those older ones, uh, you know, the single vineyards and both the, the blend really kind of hold their own over time. Now, I think the vintage that I really gets me excited Anytime I can find an 89, I just go wild over it. Um, I have some 89s, but I wish I had more. Mm. It's 90 gets so much hype, but 89 is much better vintage than, 80, than 90, in my opinion. Totally agree. So, Jeff and John, I got to ask since you're talking about 96, which is a favorite of mine too, do you think that it's a gem because it doesn't get the attention that 97, 99, and 01 got? That given its proximity to those vintages, it's it's a little special secret in your in your tool belt. Yeah, although it's kind of crazy. The critics, uh, or a lot of them, got it all wrong with vintages back then. The only 100-point vintage in the history of the Wine Spectator was 2000 in the Piedmont, which I think is an average vintage. It's not bad, but it's nothing special. And and 97 got a lot of hype, too. And I don't really love either the 97s or the 2000s. Um, I think 98's better than either of them. And 99 and 01 and 96 are all much better. And I don't even think it's close. I think there's a real debate between 96 and 99, though, as to which would be the superior vintage. I think they're both great. And I think the vintages, when we look at you know how they're critically scored and, and talked about, those things happen in the infancy. You know, Some of those things are, are starting to be rated before the vintage is even all brought in. Uh, so when you look at, and I think that we can talk about Bordeaux and Burgundy and, you know, Italy and California, you know, those kind of 96, 97 comparisons and a lot of those, uh, you know, stellar vintages, you know, critically versus where they are now, I, I would much rather be drinking, you know, 96s than the 97s. And, you know, it, it was, you know, those kind of really fleshy, ripe vintages, oh, they're going to be amazing. And then 10 years later, you know, 15 years later, there wasn't anything to them. It was just it, fruit and it didn't have that kind of triangle. I think 96 had the structure there that will kind of last for a few more years and, you know, a couple of decades more where, you know, your, your 97s and even your 99s, you don't see that. You see the great fruit, but that's kind of all that uh, ends up being there. Wonderful. Jeff, thank you so much. What a treat. Uh, so next we're going to go uh, down to, we try to make this as authentic as possible and we include an Italian uh, in uh, our, our chat here. Uh, so, Nicola, welcome uh, this evening. What do we have uh, in, in your background there? I know that's not where you actually are, but where I know that we all wish that uh, we would be. And uh, welcome this evening. And what, what do we have for us tonight? Thanks, John. And thanks, Michelle, for, for having us. And um, 
So the background is exactly not what I am. I am um, I am a place that is much flatter than this right now. I'm Florida. <laughs> so that that's not exactly right, Florida. But behind me, you can see the little village of uh, Busia Sobrano. This is a teeny tiny hamlet. Um, I think that I think the population is uh, eight or ten people. I think it's uh, it varies. Uh, with, you know, a few deaths and a few a few people. I decided to share tonight. Uh, I was debating between a Brunello and a Barolo because of the theme. When uh, when Michelle called me, I, I was really debating. Should they bring a, a Barolo? Should they bring a, a Brunello? And I grew up in Tuscany, so it, I you know I'm leaning towards Sangiovese all the time. So I decided let's uh, let's do something different. I think it's a time in our lives when we need to do. Experiment different things. So I did bring actually a bottle of, um, of Barolo. It's the Barolo Bussia from Pernotto, which it is an estate that, uh, as I see, oops, there we go. So this is a 2006 uh, Barolo Bussia. And um, I was listening to, to Jeff earlier because with the 96, if you think that there are 10 years difference between this wine and what, and what is deep, uh, tasting, um, I think that those 10 years were quite uh, impactful in, in Piedmont, but in, in Italy, throughout Italy, uh, because there was pretty, a pretty big changing style, you know, like I think the mid-90s were, to, were going towards the end of the more classic times, and uh, the, the late 90s, early 2000, you know, more structured wine, more powerful. Um, with 2006, especially with, with Pernotto, which is a wine that, that I do represent, uh, it's kind of uh, the end of the more modern style, going back towards more classic and tradition. Um, I had this bottle in my wine fridge down here in Florida, and I and I and I was very curious to taste it because I recently have had uh, a few 2006 of uh, Brunellos and Barolos, and I do find them still very powerful and tight. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if. Dave wants to add anything on, on the vintage or you, John, but I, I do I do still think that 2006, which was at the time was claimed as one of the greatest vintage of, of the decade, is still is still it still needs time. I mean, I wish I opened it this morning, but it, it, it's yeah. uh, and I wish I had 24 more bottles of this to, to open <laughs> 50 years. But I do find uh, 2006s in general still very very close in time. So I, I, you know, I keep on, uh, I keep on spinning the glass, hoping to give it some oxygen. But um, so this wine is uh, is a Barolo from the um, single vineyard of Busia. Busia is one of the historical communes of uh, uh, historical uh, MGAs, like smaller uh, vineyards in uh, in the Barolo. We're actually in the municipality of Monforte, so you're kind of sitting in between uh, La Morra and Serra Lunga. So the area of Busia, um, we believe that it has a bit of a, a bulk of the Helvetian soil from Serralunga and Tortonian soil from, from La Morra. So you do have a bit of a mix of the power and the flower in there. In, in this area, especially in the vineyard of Colonnello, which is one of the dimensione uh, geografica aggiuntiva, the little cruise. Mm-hmm. Uh, of Pronotto. So I think uh, I think uh, it's a it's a pretty good representation of one of the many great uh, areas and subzones of uh, of Piedmont. Uh, 
but uh, I find it I find it uh, very interesting because you know the, the more recent vintages they have much more drinkability uh, of this wine. Still, the mid two thousands they still have power and, and more color than than you will find in a in a, in a more recent uh, release of uh, of Barol. Yeah, no, 100%. I think that we have a question, a question for you. Sorry, uh, you know, you had, you had mentioned uh, MGAs there, and you, you sell Italian wine all day long, and you talk about Nebbiolo and Barolo. How has, how do you think that you know, with so many different regions trying to you know get more into classification, especially for their top uh, you know ways to classify, whether it be Graslazione in uh, in County Classico or as you said MGA, how have you kind of noticed uh, consumer reception? Uh, to that terminology, and you know, does it? Do you think that it is going to eventually help more in the in the sale uh, and classification of Barolo, or could it potentially uh, add to the confusion of it? No, absolutely. I think I think that that's the direction where uh, we must go, and uh, where all the producers need to go, and try to identify and, and bottles and vinify the, the smaller vineyards and smaller appellation, just to just to have a, a possibility of comparing wines from different areas made with different grapes. So Piedmont had it a bit easier because in, uh, in the Barolo area, you know, we use one grape, which is uh, Nebbiolo. Uh, the Chianti Classico has a bit more of a harder time, not just because it's a bigger area and there are many more producers in there and, and everybody needs to come to an agreement, which, uh, which is very difficult in Italy to, to get everybody to agree on the same idea. But, um, but also because Chianti Classico wasn't born as, uh, as a single variety. Brunello, yes, it was, it was made always with, uh, with Sangiovese. But when you have uh, an area and, and an appellation that is based on, uh, on mainly Sangiovese, but also other supporting grapes, uh, it's harder to make comparison. It's, you can't compare a wine that has 10% of, uh, of uh, Colorino or Cabernet or to a Sangiovese that is 100%. I think mean, that's, uh, that, that's more difficult. But, but I noticed like lately in the Chianti Classico, all the producers are going towards that direction. Um, everybody wished that, that they were going faster in that direction. But, uh, yeah. One step at a time, I, I would say. Yeah. And as you said, nothing, uh, nothing happens uh, easy or quickly in Italy. Uh, so it's, it'll be interesting to see how those classifications really help develop, uh, you know, the story of Barolo and the story of each of these particular vineyards. So uh, just think that just think that um, what the French did with one word, which is cru, for Italian, took three words, which is mencione geografica aggiuntiva. The French did it with cru. The Italians, we had to use three different. <laughs> Same amount of letters, though. So yes, uh, yeah, that's. <laughs> but Nicolo, thank you so much uh, for bringing your wine and uh, for for being a part of this and for the beautiful backdrop. Uh, so next, we'll we'll go over to Eric. And what's nice about Eric uh, and his wines this evening is that he has his own in-house Italian wine expert. So uh, you know, Eric, what well, you have a, the great shirt, but you ha also have the expert there next to you that can uh, talk about. I know two beautiful wines that uh, that Ryan has pulled. So. Ryan, the, the, the show is yours, and tell us how, how you live next to this guy uh, every day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, John. That was hysterical. You know, I suffer every day, especially now in quarantine. No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, it's great. Uh, obviously, it's helpful for us both to love wine. Um, 
But I have, so tonight, first of all, my name is Ryan, uh, and I work for Vias Imports, which is a really wonderful, special little importer of some wonderful family-owned wineries, um, represent every region of Italy, and obviously my favorite is Nebbiolo. Um, it's my favorite grape. This is what we named our puppy. I'll go get him for you. Hang on. Careful, go get him. Um, but since there's two of us, I'm cheating, and I'm I have two bottles. So uh, I wanted to ask John if it's all right with you. Do you mind if I speak a little bit about Barbaresco, and then I can kind of speak to the Predatore crew that I have here, and then if there's time or at the end, I'd love to speak about the Montessori crew from uh, Barici. That I also have two great ones, so the floor is yours. Thank okay, you. Okay, perfect. Um, so I, I'm gonna wax poetic for a moment about Barbaresco, if everyone doesn't mind. First of all, here's our this is our other Nebbiolo. This is our other Nebbiolo. This is his actual name, is Nebbiolo. <laughs> He's very happy to be on camera. He's very happy. Uh, so Barbaresco is one of my great loves, apart from these other two here. And I find so often that it's it's very misunderstood. So I'd love to speak a little bit about the history of Barbaresco and then kind of, which which leads right into the history of Predatory and then I'll talk about this crew. So if we go back in time to the late 19th century, at that time, Barolo was very much known and understood as this amazing producer of the grape of Nebbiolo. But just five miles away, you had this little village of Barbaresco and it really didn't have any uh, presence as a wine growing region at all. In fact, the grape growers who grew Nebbiolo would sell their grapes to uh, producers in Barolo. And at some point, someone, uh, Domizio Cavazzo, who was a headmaster of the uh, Enology School of Alba and a resident of Barbaresco, was kind of fed up with that. He was like, if our grapes are great, are good enough to be blended into Barolo, why aren't we just bottling wine and labeling it Barbaresco ourselves. So he did that. And in 1894, he brought together um, a group of nine other growers in the town, and they made wine in his castle, uh, as one does in Northern Italy. Uh, <laughs> and and it went really well. And that was really the first time you Barbaresco had a presence on a label as you know in the same fashion as Barolo. And that all went very, very well until uh, fascism hit in the 1930s and economic rule did not allow for co-ops. So that was all disbanded. And then to fast forward again to post-World War II, uh, pretty much all these little villages like Barbaresco were devastated by the war. There was not a lot of food or opportunity or work. And a lot of young people were fleeing these little villages to go to larger cities like Milan and uh, Torino. And the parish priest of Barbaresco Basically, it was like, I got to get the band back together. He was aware that there used to be this co-op, and he was like, I've got to save my town. I know we can do something great with wine if I can just get everyone together. So he approached 19 different growers. They came together in 1958, and they made the first three vintages, and it became known as Predatory de Barbaresco. Uh, they made the first three vintages in, in the church basement. And I think that's why it's not on this label, um, but on their normale Barbaresco, you do see on the label the the church because it's so important to them. They made the first three vintages there, very humble beginnings, and now they're just right across the street from that church. They have 52 growers, and uh, they're all doing just fine financially. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, driving their Mercedes, uh, and I and I really think that 
Portatori is probably the finest example of co-op wine in the entire world. Um, there at the helm is this amazing man. I like to think of him as like the Yoda of Barbaresco. His name is Aldo Vaca. He's a managing director. I had the very great privilege of driving along in his little uh, uh, station wagon, sitting right next to him as we kind of traversed all the nine crews and we would step out and he would just stand there and he could tell me uh, the family, every family who grows land on that crew, the name of their children, their dog, uh, what the soil is every day of weather for the past, you know, a hundred years, I'm exaggerating, but, you know, suffice to say, he knows more about wine than any of us ever could combine. <laughs> and he's just a fascinating person. And, and so today, Purgatory now does nine single vineyard crews. They're all so incredibly special. And why I chose this one, this is the Hora. This, I mean, choosing between your favorite crews is like choosing between your favorite children. They're all amazing and beautiful and special in their own way. I happen to love this one. This crew is slightly lower in exposition than the others. It's about, um, and it's a little closer to the Tanara River. So it's just a super soft, beautiful, well-balanced style. And it, the tannin structure is so beautiful and wonderful. Uh, it's uh, southwest facing slopes and it's just developed so beautifully. This is a 2014 vintage, which as a lot of people know, was a challenging vintage in Barbaresco, but we all know that great producers can make beautiful wine in all vintages. And I think that the fruit comes forward so beautifully, uh, perhaps because of the colder weather and the rain, but it's, it's just gorgeous and it opens up so well. And um, I always think, you know, drink some more Barbaresco. <laughs> and now, a word from our sponsor. Did you know that Dracina Wines now has a wine club? We named it the Chalk Club. Draco is on our label, but Vegas was getting a little jealous, so we decided he deserved to be our club spokesdog. In Las Vegas, betting chalk means that you are betting on all of the favorites. We are betting that we are one of your favorite wineries, so we thought the name was apropos. The club is simple, yet a bit different than most. When you wager on us, we will ship you three bottles of wine twice a year, once in April and once in September. You can choose all red or mix of red and rosé. You immediately receive 15% off of all your wine purchases throughout the year, but what makes our club stand out is the progressive discount. Let your club membership ride into the next year. Your discount increases. Each year you parlay your membership, you receive an additional 5% off up to a planned maximum of 25%. Your club shipments are discounted to a flat $15, plus we'll cover your club shipping cost for your second shipment. That's $15 house money in a sure bet for you. So please head to our website, dracinawines.com, and find out all of the benefits of joining the Chalk Club and how to sign up. We've stacked the odds so that you can get our award-winning wines without breaking the bank. Now, like, the, the last like actual real dinner that I had uh, before all this happened was uh, it was an 06 retrospective of all the 06 predatories uh, with, with some troubles uh, here in Chicago. So uh, yeah. poor, poor is always my favorite. That's amongst Stefano. Uh, yeah, Monte Stefano is my second favorite. Well, so, so 100% there. I will say, 
uh, John, you reminded me, the last time I had this wine, I had this and the Monte Stefano. I was sitting next to Aldo and one of the winemakers, and we were sitting in this um, very famous restaurant. If the On one side, this is the church, and on this side is the winery. Right in the middle is that restaurant. I can't remember the name right now. It's yellow, and it's beautiful. They make a 40-egg yolk tagliatelle with a veal ragu, and that is the perfect pairing for Barbaresco, and nothing will ever come close to that again. <laughs> but yes, when you get excited about uh, Nebbiolo and uh, 40 egg uh, tagliatelle, it's uh, definitely a way to finish them. So, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. I know you have another wine. We'll, we'll come back sure. to the Bruno okay. a little bit. Uh, Dave, I want to move on to you, because I know you have a, a very special wine from one of my favorite producers, uh, Montalcino. So I'll let you uh, introduce yourself and, and talk about your, your amazing wine here this evening. Thanks, John. Uh, yeah, Dave Parker, Benchmark Wine. Uh, happy to be here. Happy to be supporting uh, all our great sommeliers. Unfortunately, uh, have a little more time on their hands than they probably like right now. I actually always start with a white, and when I can't get Vermentino by Guado Altasso, uh, Niccolo, um, I look for something else. And I was really, uh, although I didn't get a Friuli or something you would think of from that area, I do have a tie-in. This is a Liguria. Uh, from this is uh, Agricolo Campo Grande, 2013, and I'm really excited. I should twist that bottle around. I'm really excited. I was all set to go to the Cinque Terre in Bernaza, uh, and I got as far as Florence and uh, Aunt Nori's headquarters, and couldn't couldn't get out there. But this wine is right from Rio Mejara. Is that yeah, the right pronunciation? Yeah, Yay, incredible, but uh, I still have to get there when this is all over. I'm going. This has got incredible uh, characteristics of lemons and tangerines and key limes and incredible minerality. Uh, would go great with the seafood uh, from that region or, in my case, a little prosciutto. Um, and it's, it's fantastic, but incredible minerality. Uh, darker color than you normally see, a little bit of saltiness from the ocean, supposedly from one of the steepest uh, vineyards. The tie-in is that this is now owned by Elio Altare of Barolo fame. Uh, this is his uh, Telemaco. Um, I'm not sure they even make this anymore. Um, this is 2013, but uh, it's pretty fantastic, and I would recommend the wines from that area. Okay, on to the heavy hitter. Uh, I picked the hardest, the hardest one, the longest name probably of any one people are ever going to have. I'm going to have to read it. This is the Chiachi Piccolomino uh, Derigiona. My Italian's terrible, and it's it's the the Brunello Reserva uh, Santa Caterina de Oro, uh, and 2001, and it is incredible. And I picked 2001. Uh, before Peter even recommended I should pick 2001 because I think it's just right at that spot. Looking at some of the other reviews, some people say like any Brunello, which has spent a lot of extra time in the tank, as you probably know, or in the, in the barrel. Um, some of these are starting to show just on the age side, but I took a chance and double decanted it about three and a half hours ago, and it is just perfect. It is it's got the purple fruits. It's got some black licorice, but it's smooth as silk. There's some some almost milky butteriness to it, uh, and, and it, that turns into a, a, a caramel or a creme brulee at the finish. It's starting to show just a tiny bit of bricking on it. 
Uh, but boy, I caught it just at the perfect spot. Still enough acid, but you could you could you could drink this if you had a case of this, you'd want to drink it. You could easily justify drinking it for the next 12 nights. So um, I think I hit the jackpot by finding this and drinking this right at this moment. So I know we have a couple uh, Chachi fans uh, out there as well. Definitely one of my favorites. And yeah, the the Katarina is definitely when you looked at re at reservas of. You know, the happily produced, again, when we talk about approachability of Montalcino, you know, there are some uh, reservas from, you know, even early 90s and before, they're still too tight, too young. Uh, but so the way that Chiachi produces wine really is that balance of approachability and still, you know, ageability as well, that, that kind of trinity of, you know, fruits and structure and acidity there. And I think especially with the vintages that they make, uh, the Caterina, that's, that's definitely one that, that fits there. So uh, an amazing wine to, to bring. So thank you for that, Dave, very much. Excellent. Cheers. Cheers to you as well. So Peter, we'll move on to, to you next. And I know that you have, uh, you, you, you dove into the cellar there with uh, Nebula. So why don't you uh, introduce yourself and talk about what, what you have going on there? Sure. Uh, thank you. Um, my name is Peter Gibson. I'm the editor of the Wine Market Journal and a wine collector. And my first entry into collecting wines was um, Nebbiolo from Barbaresco and Barolo because here in Portland, Oregon, there's an enormous uh, concentration of Italian wine lovers. And um, I remember meeting Aldo Vaca, and he said, per capita, Portland, Oregon is our biggest market. New York is our biggest market by volume, but by per capita, Portland, Oregon is our biggest market. And um, so Ryan took a little bit of my thunder there. I thought I was going to be the champion of Barbaresco. Uh, I brought um, from the cellar something I bought from bar from uh, Benchmark Wine Group. It's uh, 1978 Marchese de Grezzi uh, Martinenga Barbaresco. Um, I kind of chose this because it was accessible, but also um, because Martinenga is one of the greatest crews in Barbaresco, and it's also one of the most misunderstood because it's a monopole of the Marchese. Um, and then nowadays they make different sub crews within Mar uh, within Martinenga, but this is actually, uh, I believe, a blend of all the crews uh, from a from times past when crew Barbaresco was quite uh, a new concept. Um, I guess what uh, it, the wine is absolutely gorgeous. It, it's a flexing right now. I opened it about three o'clock, and I wish I had opened it like nine o'clock this morning. Um, because it's just really coming together with all these floral rose petal and, and you can you can almost tactilely feel the clay soil underneath uh, the, the the vines that coming through with this sappiness it's it's, it's really extraordinary um, and uh, I think uh, what I want to say about Martinenga the vineyard is that it's um, really one of the greatest crews in Barbaresco because. It's a, it's a natural amphitheater situated between Asili and Rabaya. And uh, the reason, and it used to be, you know, there were, was at least one vintage that uh, was made by the Protatory. I think it was 67. So um, I'm fortunate to have tasted that wine and it was still drinking well a couple years ago. So anyway, um, I, 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 I'm a huge fan of Barbaresco. I do not think it gets its due. There's no Festa Great. del Barbaresco. <laughs> There, there's no champion like Antonio Galoni champ, champions, um, Barolo and James Suckling uh, champions, Brunello. There's no Barbaresco champion, and I really think the world deserves 
well, Barbaresco needs doesn't need, but it should deserve more respect in the world of wine. Marquesa, you guys agree. What's what's really great about Marquesa and through you know their their um, you know those wines they they sell a lot of wines and actually re-release them. So uh, you know I've been able to have verticals on on my list in the past, and you know those wines whether from Martininger or when you get more specific like Comp Grow or uh, some of the the more kind of individual pockets. Uh, those wines are just absolutely incredible. And, and when I saw that you were going to bring uh, Martinega, so uh, from when I was at Marchese last time. Oh, like, that's the Grappa. So I got a Grappa. You can't call it Barbaresco. We have Grappa de Nebbiolo from Martinega from Marchese. So I'm switching uh, from Barolo to uh, Barbaresco here. We're going to do this now. Uh, that's awesome. and we'll see how much farther we go. Peter, cheers to you and uh, cheers to everybody out there. So Thank uh, you. beautiful. So. Uh, Kat, we'll, we'll switch down to you now, and uh, last but certainly not least, uh, welcome uh, to the fun here, and why don't you tell us about yourself and about the wine that you brought with us this evening. Sure. So, uh, can you guys hear me? Mm -hmm. yeah. yep. Great. My name is Kat, uh, and I uh, worked as a sommelier uh, right before this at a restaurant called uh, Brooklyn Fair, and then prior to that, I was working uh, on the opening psalm team for uh, Manhattan, uh, which is a... Union Square Hospitality Group, uh, Danny Meyer Restaurant. And I do not, I went through most of uh, the things that I was holding on to during the first weeks of quarantine, and Michelle asked me last minute to participate. Um, and I had limited access, so I went out to my favorite uh, shop in the neighborhood in Prospect Heights, Vanderbilt L Wines, if anybody is familiar, which is a really great collection. Uh, and I'm cheating. I know we're doing three Bs, but I, I have a much more uh, modest example of the Nebbiolo grape from Piedmont tonight. But I thought it was important to bring this to the table, perhaps, because of the value uh, of that wine and that price point that I think a lot of people uh, might find themselves in in the situation, especially someone like me uh, hanging out, uh, not in the restaurant right now. So this is... Uh, Giuseppe Nada 2018 and so we have a Longue here so Longue DOC and you'll see the wines there are not 100% and don't have the same aging requirements because they're meant to be enjoyed sort of in this fresher um, lighter leaner style uh, so Nebbiolo you'll see the variety for the Longue uh, and that's uh, an example here from this guy small producer just 15 acres. Uh, they're based in uh, Treviso in uh, Barbaresco, which is definitely sort of tends towards that like newer, lighter uh, style. Um, and I just wanted to be close. Nebbiolo is definitely my favorite grape, and I wanted to be able to be close to that style of wine uh, at a price point that was accessible for me at this time. Absolutely. So that's a, a great transition, actually, and we'll kind of open this up. Uh, you know, we'll start, Kat, with you as a, as a sommelier, and, and when you come back, uh, onto the restaurant floor of, you know, looking at, you know, Barolo, Barbaresco, Brunello, all really iconic wines that, you know, when we look at how those are going to be priced on restaurant wine lists, uh, you know, how do you look at Lange Nebbiolo, Rosso Montalcino, and some of the other varietals from these producers, how do you think that that's going to really, uh, you know, open up these regions of, of Piedmont and Tuscany uh, for, for guests that may not want to spend for Barolo or for, uh, you know, a, a Brunello? I think that the margin on your classic wines is it's just going to have to go down and it's something that we're going to accept. And then I think you're going to see an increase in regions in Piedmont like Gemme and Gatunara and other areas that really already offer a fantastic value uh, and a taste of this style. Um, but that just might be 
more you might see more of those uh, on on the lists now. No, absolutely. And, and from you know, Dave, looking at you know your your business and you know the the ability to to sell some of these wines, how have you noticed uh, you know the the economy of for Barolo, uh, Brunello, and Barbaresco of you know the the requests for those things, accessibility, and uh, how potentially some of the other wines that these producers are making uh, the requests and maybe popularity of those as well. Yeah, no, we've seen tremendous uh, interest uh, to Cat's point uh, at, the, at the affordable level for classic wines, which for us would be in the fifty to hundred dollar range, uh, but then also still at the at the collectible and investable level. So. One to three hundred dollars, three to five, and then even up over to over a thousand. And and Italian wines as a class, and maybe Peter can speak a little more to this because he tracks these values. But Italian wines as a class over the last few months have outshined First Growth Bordeaux, uh, 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 the Premier uh, Grand Cru uh, Burgundy. Uh, and we've really seen some appreciation. I think part of that is that there is no um, uh, tariff on the Italian wines as compared to the Bordeaux and the Burgundies. So the ones that are coming from the continent uh, are a little more affordable. And the collectibles, I think, have piqued people's interest. And we, we've seen tremendous support at all levels there. And uh, it's you know, I don't want to jinx it, but it's almost as though... Uh, there's renewed interest in the market for collectible, investable wines, which really, in this case, now means everything at every price point. Right. Okay. Peter, do you have anything that you're seeing as you look at every every wine in the world and how it trades? Um, yes, it, it, it's true. One of the um, few categories that we track at the Wine Market Journal that has gained consistently in the past four quarters is um, Italian wine, the, the blue chip Italian wines, where uh, first growth Bordeaux is very soft, and you know we saw this incredible ascent of Burgundy, you know basically going back to the financial disaster of 2008. It's been an almost a precipitously linear up uh, upward trend of prices at Burgundy up until about. Uh, Q3 of last year when it didn't, and, and it really hasn't recovered, and it continues to be soft. I, I, I Honestly, I don't think people are splashing for the big bottles like they did when the economy was strong and the optimism was high. I think people are looking for value now, and uh, Italian wine at many price categories is just an incredible value, and, and we're going to see more and more uh, activity, at least here in the States. And Peter, do you see that for for personal investment or for uh, you know utilizing those kind of blue chip things as market for you know trying to make uh, financial gains out of those? That does Italy have some potential for for staying power as uh, marketability for that beyond just personal collections? Well, that's a really good question, John. Um, first of all, even though I track the market and all the indices and all that, I don't buy. To invest, I buy to drink. Okay, so um, at a personal level, I, I, you know, am not buying any wines with the hope that you know, five years down the line, I can turn it for a profit. That that's just not my mode. Um, I think I think there are a couple trends that are 
happening now that are really different from times past, and that is social media, okay? When a wine hits social media and it's got the force of some of the top songs and some of the top voices on social media behind it, we will see an, an enormous growth in price for that wine. Uh, I think the role of the critic by and large is diminishing as the voice of social media gains strength. We call that either the Rajpar or the Patrick Capaiello effect. Uh, both of those, uh, I think that I think Patrick drinks more ramen than actually has ever been made. Uh, all the allocations go to him, but I, I think that you're you're correct of how we share, you know, information and you know, seeing more producers and everybody who's trying to get their voice out there uh, at this point. Uh, you know, I think that those kind of you know influencers will have uh, a little bit more uh, you know kind of cachet effect as far as what the market goes. Ryan, we'll flip back to you. Uh, now that I think everybody has shared uh, the wine this evening, I know you have a beautiful Brunello if you want to talk about uh, that producer and the beautiful vintage uh, of Brachi. Absolutely. Um, first, if I may, I saw a couple comments in the chat where some folks were saying, you know, uh, Barolo, the ones they've drank, they haven't really enjoyed. Maybe it was too tannic for them. So for people who haven't quite dipped their toe into the Barolo pond or Nebbiolo just, they're not, they haven't found the one that's right for them. I really would, not to keep hammering on this, but I really would recommend to start with Barbaresco. I don't want to genderize wine, but people do say it's more of that feminine style. It tends to be a little softer, more of that rose petal, um, or a Lange Nebbiolo, something that's younger and fresh and bright and like meant to drink young that won't hit you over the head so much in the tannins. Um, I really think that's a great way to go if you're just trying to really introduce yourself more to, uh, to Barolo. But to switch gears, I want to talk about this beautiful wine. <laughs> so um, this is Barici, Brunello di Montalcino 2015. Before I jump right into the producer, I do want to say something um, about, uh, sorry, Montesole. This is a crew. Uh, so in terms of Montalcino, uh, I think it's almost impossible to define Montalcino as a, uh, Brunello, excuse me, as a universal style. About one third of Brunello comes from the north, and that has a very distinct style. And then two thirds come from the south, and that also has a very distinct style. And it is just as important to have a conversation about the micro nuances in soil and exposition and, and a, a proximity to the coast and all of those those things that create terroir when it comes to Montalcino, as it is in Piedmont, as it is in Burgundy, and, and, and so on. And I think so many of us, when we're drinking Brunello, we're not always having that deeper conversation of where is this grown and why is it expressing itself this way? And I think the reason I, I'm so excited to, sh to show this wine is because this is a great wine to sort of have that conversation. So if you look at this label, it says Montesoli. I'm not sure if many people have heard of this, um, but this Monticelli was is considered one of the first crews of Italy. Um, if you are arriving into Tuscany, you're in Siena, and that is your sort of you're you're heading into uh, to Montalcino. Siena, from there, you'll see the the hill of Monticelli. That is sort of the the watchtower or the gateway into Montalcino, if you will. Um, this is a very, very, very special hill. There are only six total producers that have their vineyard sites on this hill. There's six total Brunello producers. Uh, Barici was the first one. This guy, Nello Barici, is considered one of the fathers of 
Brunello, uh, when he was in his 20s, he was very smart to use all of his entire life savings to snatch up the best sites on this hill uh, in 1955. And he was also one of the founding members of the consortio of Montalcino. He, in fact, he was the first signature and he has badge number one. So he is kind of the OG and he was super under the radar because not a lot of people know that about him. And he really had the foresight to know what a just absolute premier spot this is going to be and how important Brunello was going to be to the world in just a few years. And uh, some fun fast facts about why this is such a cool little uh, property. They are the only producer in Montessori to have their entirety of their vineyard sites on this hill, all 12 acres. Not any of the other five producers have that. Uh, and he's the only producer to have their winery on the hill. And that it's called uh, Columbia Montessori, which is why the name of the wine, I'm so sorry if you can't see that, is actually the name. Uh, and he is the only producer to have a Rosso de Montalcino on Montessori. So, you know, when people love to say, this Rosso is like a baby Brunello, and that's kind of like not true. It almost is for them because they're the only one with a Rosso on this crew site. Uh, so it's just super cool. And in fact, their total production is like 16,000 bottles. So if you haven't seen this a lot, that's probably why it's pretty special and niche and very small production. Um, I, for me personally, this is my, when I first tasted this, this was the absolute most perfect expression of Sangiovese I had ever had. It is the most beautiful Brunello I have ever had the privilege of drinking and I've had the great fortune of drinking some really beautiful ones. And um, it's just, to me, that perfect Goldilocks zone of balance. I think what's so special about Montessori is it's at this elevation, where they are is that Goldilocks zone. They're 270 meters above sea level. And because of that, where the style is very, very high acid, which is due to the soil. It's mostly glestro and sand and schist, not a whole lot of clay. So it's just super perfumey and fresh and bright. Uh, a little lower alcohol than you might see from other Brunello expressions. And the tannins are just so, so, so perfectly soft and well integrated. It's just, this is the, this is the new vintage of 2015. You can open this and drink this now and it's just singing. It's just gorgeous. And of course it can age forever, but it just sh shows so beautifully. So I think that there, there's, you know, there's Altacino, there's other great producers. Uh, I encourage anyone who's, who wants to explore further into the conversation of Brunello to really search out why uh, producers who have their vineyard sites on Montessori because it's just such a unique and gorgeous expression. Uh, and I think almost the, it is like the benchmark of Brunello, if I can say that. <laughs> So. Benchmark's a good word these days. Oh, yeah, benchmark. <laughs> yeah, we'll let you use it. Transition. Folks who want to delve further into, into Brunello soils and stuff like that, Karen O'Keefe's book is really quite good. Mm. Absolutely. And I've, I've, uh, I've devoured it several times. So um, Her Barolo book is good, too. Yes, it is. And, and you know, it, it really she, – she does a terrific – job but if we're talking about Brunello for example she breaks the Montalcino zone into I can't remember like seven zones I mean she really slices and dices it and gets into what makes each zone unique and I highly recommend if anybody's looking for something to read during this quarantine period it's, it's a good book 100%. I actually was, I was lucky enough to walk the Montessori vineyard with uh, Francesco Rivalo, um, who does Canaligio de Sopra one of the yep. producers and 
you know, as we were walking the vineyard, uh, this was you know, right after Nello died in uh, 2017. Yep. Basically, they said, like, we're lucky to get fruit on this vineyard because Nello allows us to. You know, with, with how they produced, uh, is produced over time, uh, you know, like I said, I've seen them, some other ones make, but uh, I think really showcasing that vineyard is, is pretty pretty fantastic. So awesome. thanks for bringing those wines and for the um, for the breakdown of uh, Montalcino too. So as we kind of wrap up here uh, from our panelists, any final thoughts on the, the past, the present, the future of, of the three Bs, and I guess the most important part of that, as we, you know, come out of this, hopefully on the other side, uh, you know, will that still be something that, uh, you know, drives the conversation of the icons of Italy? And is there not even that there would be a fourth B, but what possibly could be the, the last one to add on to that and where we sit uh, with the future of uh, Barolo, Brunello, and Barbaresco uh, here, hopefully in more normal times here soon. So, We'll open that up as kind of our final uh, discussion question here to everybody. I think um, some, somebody mentioned, I can't remember who, I'm, I apologize, but I think uh, the northern Piemonte and the Val d'Aosta are areas that are going to gain in prominence. Um, I think like, northern Italy is it's so diverse and so fascinating and so compelling. We just need to explore it more and more. Um, you know, I'm seeing things from Lesona and Bramatera and, you know, Carema and uh, Valdeosta and all that kind of stuff. I think and they're wonderful expressions of uh, Nebbiolo-based wine. They're not 100%, but they're they're really great wines. So I, it's kind of like, you know, going north, go higher on the hill, it seems, because, you know, weather is getting warmer and stuff or down in the flats. I think that a fourth B not to be controversial, but soon might be um, Barbera. But I agree. Yeah, I agree. Right? Specifically, Nizza. Nizza in 2014 yes. became the, a DOCG, a single bridal appellation. It, I mean, it, you couldn't liken it to the Barolo of Barbera, if you want to be so bold to say that. But right now, we're seeing some really heavy-hitting, incredible iconic producers buying up land in Nizza because they know the potential of this appellation. They, the, the style of Barbera that's coming out of Nizza is just like, it's blowing my mind. The ones I've had to been able to try are gorgeous. It's the most, it's the apex expression of Barbera. Well, aren't they, I've had a little bit of exposure with, with those wines at the tasting with Ian Diagata, which is, you know, I always feel like I'm learning exponential at an exponential rate when I'm tasting with him. But I feel like those, that style from that latest, um, Nizza is meant to be like this sort of unexplored, bolder expression that has like the right. presence of oak and is more powerful. And we don't yeah. really know how that's going to show up 10, 15 years from now yet because it's brand new. And it's interesting to see what that potential might be, especially considering yeah. what that price point might be. Exactly. It's such a higher price point. I think right now there's like trepidation on the part of consumers and buyers because they're like, when I taste Nizza with people, they're like, this is delicious. I think yeah. this is incredible, but I don't know how to put a Barbera on my list at $80 or, you know, in that range. And I think the struggle is going to be just educating people on this is an entirely new appellation for Barbera. The requirements are so strict. It must be aged in wood. It must be aged in the cellar for a certain amount of time. It has to be uh, 
south facing only and the, i mean there's the amount of restrictions no one and the land is expensive now i mean there's a lot of factors going into why it's expensive but i but yes we don't know quite how they're going to age yet they're meant to age but we haven't seen that and and it's also getting people to understand that this isn't just your quick uh just just drink it this vintage barbera this is this is something meant to they're pushing the envelope here so it's about getting people to be aware of that aware it's of it exciting. and tracing it it's exciting i love it i am loving Nitsa so much yeah. that's the part of you know for Nitsa and really anything that is going to be talked about in the category i think of you know the our topic for tonight you know it has to be generational you know it has to last for decades of, you know, we're talking about 50s and 60s and, and uh, you know, great vintages that are, you know, older than, you know, than we're going to end up being and of being delicious. What kind of wines, you know, can fit into that? I think the still remains to be seen if, if anything can reach that and if the goal of anything to reach that, you know, we, Pino Pro, Marbaresco and Brunello producers, you know, they're not making it to last 50 years anymore. They're making it for a balance of, you know, approachability, but still be, you know, a balance of traditional and modern styles. So uh, really interesting to see what's going to happen next. So, uh, but John, the Villana Spanas from the 50s are going strong right now. Yeah. And those are cheap wines that at least current vintages are quite cheap and, and they last forever. Well, I, I want to throw in there for Kat and Ryan, especially, and for everyone, you know, the talk about Nizza. Do you remember five years ago thinking about spending anything more than $40 on a Beaujolais would have been like absurd. And now you've got Le Pierre and Foyard and, and Pimoligia Belair and they're making these because it's not just that it's Gamay. It's not that it's Beaujolais. It's that they have changed the style. They have found the micro, the cruise, and they're making these unicorns now that are, you know, north of a hundred dollars. Nitsa is going through that right now. And for all of you that are paying attention, if you can find any Nitsa, stock the heck up because it's. I firmly believe the price are going to skyrocket. Like when when uh, the last one I had, the Ryan has an amazing one in portfolio. It blew me away. Like seriously, started tearing. It was so incredibly delicious. And I had no idea. No, seriously, I love I love Barbera and I love Dolcetto, but I never knew Barbera could be that. So so to everyone's point, like yeah, it's crazy to think about an expensive Barbera now, but. Maybe not. But maybe it's you know, not. Just give it a year or two. And, and if we all help, you know, the groundswell of that and and support these incredible producers, I don't think it would take much for to, to bring that in. So it's a great value for everyone right now. It's a great Remember, value. Clover Jard would be 300 bucks. Yeah. 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 Hopefully, hopefully not. Well, but well, I think Barbera is that that one right now where you're getting that mix between like the much more old school and new school. You're getting the thing that it still can age and yet it's approachable and, and it's at a price point that we can, most people can afford at the moment. And so I, I agree. I agree with everybody like stock it up now because I could see it being the fourth B. Yeah. yeah. And it's, they're working toward a, almost a first growth mentality. They're dropping the name Barbera mm -hmm. from their labels in the next couple of vintages. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to be able to be on a tasting panel last time I was in Italy of all Nizza wines, and that's what they want to be called. They want to be viewed. I said, give me shorthand verbal. They said the first growth of Barbera, and we're not going to even use the word Barbera anymore. And that really is what they're going to become. But Italy is my final thought. Italy really has the diversity of region, the passion of winemaking, and now finally 
the the quality and the intention to be so so deep and so broad at the same time that really no country with the exception of France is there now. I think Italy is deeply committed to following in that model and in a lot of ways exceeding uh, exceeding that model and they have all the right pieces for doing it. Is anybody else really excited about Sicilian wines? I yeah. think oh, the Mendo wines are super hot. Absolutely. I love Sicilian. Is this might be one of your favorite wines. I know. Before, before we open up that, because that's an entirely different, we could talk for hours about Sicilian. Uh, uh, I know that we have to wrap up here soon. So I wanted to thank all of our panelists here this evening uh, for joining us and for sharing your beautiful wines. Uh, thank you to... Uh, to Dave uh, and Benchmark for having me uh, this evening and to Michelle for organizing this. Uh, as, as Eric and I know, uh, our, our days are consumed with, you know, helping out the, those people in our industry that, you know, are having a, a tough time of being able to just, you know, get to get to the next day. And uh, so any help that can be brought to the United Sommeliers Foundation uh, is certainly appreciated. And whether that is through, you know, a, a financial donation, if you have some amazing wines uh, in your cellar, you know, being able to donate to our upcoming auction or just posting through social media of, of that. The more people that know about what's happening uh, in our world, uh, definitely the better. And there are a lot of uh, people in our industry that love the wines that we're talking about. And I know can't wait to get back on the floor and start talking about them again. And, uh, you know, we, we hope to get them back there soon. So Michelle, I'll pass it on to, to you at this point. And uh, thank you all so much uh, this evening uh, for having me. So. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I'm also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoyt Bud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher to help others find me more easily. Until next week, slancha. No, no, no. Red. Wine. White. Wine. Blush. Wine. Sweet. A nice glass right now. Why? I want a nice glass right now. No, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. Never let you go. Oh, oh. No, no, no. No, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. Never let you go. Oh, oh. No, no, no. Give me the red, red wine. Give me the blush. Wine, wine, give me the white, white, white